Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Writer and explorer Gretel Ehrlich is author of 13 books, including The Solace of Open Spaces. She's written for National Geographic, The Atlantic, Orion, other publications. Her writing has covered everything from her experience being struck by lightning to essays about how climate change has been affecting the Arctic communities in Greenland that she's been visiting for the past 16 years. Writing in Harper's Magazine, she notes that instead of nine months of good ice, there are only two or three now in Greenland, when, where before the ice in spring was once routinely six to ten feet thick. In 2004, the thickness was only seven inches, even when the temperature was minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And Gretel Ehrlich says what people don't understand about the Arctic is that this isn't just about those other people, those Eskimos that have nothing to do with us. The Arctic drives the climate of the whole globe. Gretel Ehrlich is in Utah for Heal Utah's Fall Party Fundraiser. That's happening in Salt Lake City this evening at 6.30. You can get details at healutah.org. And she'll be heading to Paris for the UN Climate Change Conference uh, later on. And it's a pleasure, Gretel Ehrlich, to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I want to jump right in to uh, how a California girl ends up in Greenland. You've, you've spent a lot of time in Greenland. How did, how did that first happen? Well, I've been um, ranching in northern Wyoming. That does help um, set you up for cold weather when you're feeding cows every day from the back of a hay wagon. Get you acclimated, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I, I was hit by lightning on that ranch in Medivac back to California, um, where I was feeling really claustrophobic. Once I got well, I was feeling claustrophobic, and um, and I, I was. Um, you know, I was at a party, and I met a magazine publisher who said, uh, it, she published Islands Magazine. She said, oh, I can never get anyone to go to the cold islands. and I'm trying to find someone to go to Greenland. And I said, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, of course, I'd read Knut Rasmussen. Uh, I'd read the books of Peter Freugen and... Um, other people. So I, I was interested in Arctic culture. Um, I'd been to Arctic Canada and written about it for Harper's Magazine. And um, so I was actually, you know, seriously interested in going. And it allowed me to get above um, tree line, where I feel less claustrophobic without going to altitude, because I, I was not really well enough to go to altitude at that point. So I discovered, oh, yes, the Arctic is just like being at 14,000 feet in the Rockies. So I went, and by the time I'd spent the first couple of weeks there, I met so many fantastic Inuit people. Um, I just knew that I was going to be writing about it. And you kept going back, even when you didn't have an assignment. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I, I called it my um, graduate school fund. I didn't go to graduate school, so but I, I spent about a hundred thousand dollars going there. I actually have been going there for twenty-two years. Oh wow! Um, hmm. And uh, I just kept—I went back every. I've been there in every season, and I pretty much went back every year for a long time. And so so um, I worked my way up the coast, and finally ended up in the two northernmost. Uh, the, the northernmost town of Kanak and the northernmost village in the world called Siapaluk. Uh So tell tell us a little bit about Greenland. Uh, I think we know it's an enormous island covered almost entirely with a uh, 
large ice sheet, although that's changing. Um, and people, <laughs> people it's collapsing, but it's still there. Still there. And people live on the coast. Yes, there's no place else to live. Yeah. Um, so very cold and for much of the year dark. You know, it's dark at the top. You know, it's a long island. It is the biggest island in the world. At the top of the island where I spent most of my time, it gets, the sun goes down on February 24th. And, um, oh, I'm sorry, it goes down on October 24th, and it comes back on February 24th. So it is completely pitch dark. It's not like Alaska where there's ambient light. It's completely pitch dark during those months, except, of course, when there's a full moon um, mm. that shows and shines on the ice but, and snow. But um, So it's dark for those months. And then the, inter- the months that lead up to that on both sides have kind of this long 24-hour twilight, which is very beautiful. And then um, for about four months, it's just bright light. Um, around the clock, and and so that darkness, I, I I guess you adjust to it. You go up there and you and you. Yeah, it was re- real scary the first time I flew up there in the dark time, <laughs> because you can see if you're flying up from the south, from South Greenland, from Kanasluswak, where you fly in, you can actually see this wedge of darkness ahead of you, and. Um, and you kind of, you're sort of holding your feet and hands out like, no, no, no. And then suddenly you're in the midst of it and knowing that there's no way to get out. I, I fantasize that I could get a shovel and lift up this sort of edge of darkness and see sunlight underneath it. But hmm. that didn't work. Yeah, that's... Um, <laughs> but, but actually you do, um, after that initial fear is gone, it's quite, quite interesting. And, um, and you're living in a in a village. Um, you know, there's no cars, so everybody has candles on in their windows. You know, round the clock, and doors are open, and people always have coffee and soup and stuff on. So it's it's quite lovely. People go around and visit and tell stories. Mm. Uh, tell me about the you so. So then you come back, right? You'd fly up there, you visit for however long, and you come back. How, how is it adjusting back to the light? Um, the first few times, um, I, I got really, really bad headaches. I called my friend who was coming to pick me up at LAX, and I said, just bring really dark sunglasses and, um, and a hat. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of, I think part of that was, Kind of culture shock too. It wasn't just physiological. It was, it was really about having been in another world in what I think of as Aboriginal time, um, because it is sort of timeless, and your circadian rhythms are all um, readjusted. But so as the years went by, and I came and and went, I usually spent at least a month there. Um, I uh, I got used to it, and it, 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 I could make the transition more easily. Now, what about the cold? I, there's a picture of you on National Geographic uh, website. You're, 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 you know, most of your face is covered with <laughs> furs and stuff. You can see your uh, eyebrows covered in frost. Yeah. 
And I, I don't, I don't know. I, uh, we're just adjusting into fall here in Utah, and it's getting a little colder. And I know I'm having trouble. I, what? <laughs> so the, well, you know, you you wear the proper clothes. I guess so. Yeah. Um, you know, I, what I wore pretty much every day was an um, heavy duty duty Polar Tech Union suit, so a one piece suit. That's really important. Um, with a kind of high collar that zipped up the front and. Um, and over that I wore, well, when we lived out on the ice, you wear polar bear pants and fox fur anoraks. And, um, I've actually, so the coldest I've ever traveled was 59 below zero. Um, and but more often it was, uh, you know, between 10 below and 35 below. But, um... You know, you just you, your hands and feet and face get cold, but and you you do get frostbite all over any exposed skin. But um, it's it's you know the core body is stays warm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just joined us, we're talking with Gretel Ehrlich, who's a writer and explorer. She spent a lot of time in Greenland, uh, in in the Arctic uh, Circle, and uh, she's been. Uh, been studying the the people living with the the people there the Inuits and of course Greenland is uh, a real touch point with climate change we're going to talk about that talk about a lot of other things as as well you're welcome to join the conversation at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upraxcess at gmail dot com I read a look I, I want to read just this paragraph and and have you comment on the on the Inuit people that you've that you you know quite well uh, this is from uh, your recent article in Harper's Magazine, uh, quoting Gretel Ehrlich, ice-adapted people have amazing agility, which allows them to jump from one piece of drift ice to another and handle half-wild dogs. They understand that life is transience, change, a chance and change. Because ice is so dynamic, melting in summer and reforming in September, Greenlanders in the far north understand that nothing is solid, that boundaries are actually passages, that the world is a permeable place. On the ice, they act quickly and precisely, flexing mind as well as muscle, always modest in front of the weather, as your friend Jens explained. Their material culture ex- represents more than 10,000 years of use. Dog sleds, kayaks, skin boats, polar bear and skeelskin pants, uh, bone scrapers, harpoons, bearded seal skin whips, all designed for beauty, f- efficiency, and survival in a harsh world where most people would be dead in a day. Uh, so that's, it's beautiful, dramatic. Um, and, and this is a culture, a life that's been going on thousands of years and is under under threat. Right, sadly. And, and the, the change is fast. It's 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 happening so fast. Yeah. Uh, how are how are they are 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 they going to be able to adapt? Is that even possible? Oh, the I ice mean, you know, this word adapt is I think misunderstood because in order to adapt. In terms of just survival, of course they're going to survive. You can, you know, they're they're not. They have food and they can go elsewhere for jobs. But there, you can't adapt out of your culture and still have anything. I mean, their culture is on a very fast death spiral uh, because these are people and animals um, and you know life ways that um, co-evolved with ice. And when the ice goes, it all goes. The animals go, the people go, the culture goes, the language goes. 
all the things that they know about living in that environment disappear. And they make everything themselves, and that knowledge, the traditional ecological knowledge disappears. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I get really sick of those two words, ad- adaptation and resilience. Like, come on, you guys. This is the death of sort of the last great culture, indigenous culture that is, was com- in Greenland completely intact until the ice started going. So. Mm. And your friend Jens, I, 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 sorry, I didn't write down his last name. Um, Jens Danielson. Yeah. Jens Danielson. He says, we weren't born to buy and sell things, but to live with our families on ice and hunt for our food. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so the, this is a hunting culture, um, and uh, they, live in, <clears throat> they live and hunt in extended family groups, it's a food-sharing society. It's, they live in small villages. Um, they have no... Uh, they just live outside of the conventions of the contemporary world um, because they're not driven by a market society. They're not... I mean, they do have to make a little money, but, you, you know, they're subsistence people, and um, life is very, very different in, uh, for, for people who live that way. Mm. I, I feel really grateful that I got to experience that way of living. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with Gretel Ehrlich. Uh, she's author of several books, uh, writes for many of the top publications. Um, you could uh, check out her uh, some of her latest writings in Harper Magazine on, on Greenland. She's been visiting Greenland for, uh, what did you say, 22 years um, and uh, has been witness to the very rapid changes uh, taking place there, uh, harbinger of what's happening around the world. Uh, Gretel Ehrlich is in Utah for the Heal Utah Fall Party. That's a fundraiser for the organization. You can find out more on that at healutah.org. That's happening in Salt Lake City, 6.30 this evening. Gretel Ehrlich is the, uh, the main speaker there. More following the break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. The amount of water you consume every day plays an important role in maintaining your health. Water makes up 60% of your body weight. Every day you lose water, and it's important to replenish your water supply to maintain proper body function. Experts recommend 8 to 10 glasses of water each day for good health. Water helps maintain the balance of body fluids. Water can also help control calories, especially since water is calorie-free. Water helps keep skin looking good and healthy. Water can help keep you full and your blood sugar at a normal level. Water can also aid in a healthy weight by flushing out toxins. How can you get all your glasses of water in a day? Try having a glass of water at every meal. Also eat more fruits and vegetables because they have a higher water content and bring a water bottle on the go. This is Nicole Jackson from the Be Well program at Utah State University. Remember to live well, work well, and be well. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm pleased to have for the hour with me writer and explorer Gretel Ehrlich. Uh, Her books include The Empire in the Empire of Ice, Encounters in a Changing Landscape. Uh, she's also written a collection of personal essays, The Solace of Open Spaces, uh, 
a novel, Heart Mountain, short stories, Drinking Dry Clouds, stories from Wyoming, and a memoir about her life after being struck by lightning, A Match to the Heart, One Woman's Story of Being Struck by Lightning. You can find her articles in many magazines, National Geographic, uh, New York Times Magazine, and others. And she's in Utah for an event for Heal Utah. You can find details there at healutah.org. It's their fall party fundraiser, and it's tonight at 6.30 in Salt Lake City. I get details at healutah.org. Uh, so, Gretel Ehrlich, um, what if you could give us a sense of the, the scope of change in Greenland, talking about uh, you know, the, the warming of, of the climate there and, and the disappearance of the ice. Right. Yeah, when I first went to... Greenland, um, you know, the ice was just regular. It was, it came in in the middle of September. Um, it thickened to um, 10 to 14 feet thick. So this is sea ice. So it's the frozen sea, the sea freezing, 10 feet deep. Um, I would say six feet at the minimum. But you know, it, it was completely reliable, and it it didn't melt until what they call in Europe Midsummer's Night, uh, June 21st, around there. Um, so that's nine months of... So the, the sea ice is, is the highway uh, and the also breeding and um, living grounds for all the marine mammals on which um, northern Arctic people survive. Um, so that that was normal. Uh, we never ever thought about it. You know, I just came and went, and there was always ice, and we always went out and lived out on the ice for a month at a time, and um, thought nothing of it. But um, at the the late 1990s, it began to come apart at odd times. Our sled went through the ice in 1998, partly through all the dogs went in, and the sled started going in. We got them out, and we. We rescued ourselves, but um, that you know, the hunters started scratching their heads, saying, "This is strange. Why is this happening?" And um, in 2000, and by two, by the year 2000, it began to um, really come apart. It came in later. It melted faster, and in the interim months, when the ice was always solid, it just um, large holes appeared. In the ice, and what happens is the because of the the uh, temperature uh, disparities that it mist um, rose from the open water, and then it formed a kind of cloud over it. So um, then that prevented the ice from refreezing um, underneath that cloud of mist. So it was a kind of an example of a feedback loop that we saw very early. And if you're out on a on the ice and you see those kind of clouds in the distance, they look different than storm clouds, you know there's open water over there and that it's dangerous. Um, by 2004, when I was sent by National Geographic for uh, several months on the ice, a walrus hunt, the ice was so bad that um, it it was seven inches thick. So it it was 35 below zero the day we headed out, it dropped to 59 below zero, and the ice was still seven inches thick. So when we walked on it, it undulated, and um, you could almost see through it. It was really scary. Mm -hmm. And then it just, at every headland on the coast, it, it 
broke apart, and we had to go up and over part of the ice cap to, just to get over onto ice that was good. It took us almost three weeks just to get back to the village. Um, and there was we got really no food during that time. So um, that was 2004. By 2007, I was there, and there, there was you know, virtually no ice at all in February. I called, and the uh, hunter said, well, come come when it's really cold. You know, February and March are the coldest months there, and there was just no ice. And then, um, since then, that, because the Gulf Stream is slowing down, all, all these, all, so many things are happening in the interactions of the atmosphere and the ocean that now... Um, Sometimes it's colder in the Arctic, and ice will form to, you know, three feet, two feet, one foot, uh, sometimes not until April or May, and so they go out. These guys go out, you know, they just stand there and wait for ice that's thick enough to travel on, and they just go hunting. Um, But it's very dangerous. It breaks away. Um, It's very easy to go down into the water and never be seen again. So that's it. It's it's touch and go, and you never know from one year to another what's what's going to happen. So that people who have been rely who co-evolved with ice, who have rely on ice as subsistence hunters, can no longer know where the food is coming from, and as a result, many of the the um, lesser less productive hunters have shot their dogs because they can no longer feed them. So where is this going, do you think, in terms of the, you know, the life and the, and the culture for the, for the Inuit? So are they planning on X, in X number of years, they just have to move to town and the life is different? <laughs> well, well, it doesn't quite work that way. The, all of the young people, all the young kids who were raised as hunters, both girls and boys, have all been sent to South Greenland which is below the Arctic Circle, to learn a trade or to go to college. or you, know, you, you can go to university in Denmark for free as well, but most of them choose to stay um, in Greenland, and they learn you know, a vocational trade, or um, the real bright ones become helicopter pilots and work for the oil companies. Or, in other words, the, the life that they were raised in and expected to live the life of a hunter um, is gone. It's mm. just not there. The, so their parents, many of the parents, have also left. Some have committed suicide. And my friends Jens and Mamret, who are waiting for me in Paris, um, they're participating in a film and some events there for the climate conference. Um, you know, they just make do. They hunt muskox. Uh, up on the ice cap, they they just they just make do. Um, you know, they say we they. <laughs> Jan said, "Oh, they want us to be bankers and fishermen." Dot dot dot. Well, we're not bankers and fishermen, and we're you know we're only what we are. We we can't become something we're not. Mm. So they'll just stay. If you just joined us, we're talking with writer and explorer Gretel Ehrlich. We're talking right now about Greenland and uh, climate change. Uh, so tell me about what, what you are going to be doing at the uh, at the Paris conference. Well, you know, everything we were going to do has been canceled and 
altered. Um, we originally, um, a visual artist named Mel Chin and I were together at the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation last spring, and we came up with the idea of um, having a dog sled pulled by eight French standard poodles um, <laughs> and <laughs> driven by my two friends from Connacht, Jens, and Mamorit. Um, through the streets of Paris, in uh, you know, in front of the iconic images, the Eiffel Tower, et cetera, et cetera, um, and all this was going to be filmed as a kind of public service announcement about the death of a culture, and and that um, you know whatever happens in the Arctic happens everywhere in the world because of the way Arctic drives the climate of the world, and um, of course all those permits, um, they started filming, they were supposed to start filming the day the terrorist attacks happened. So they're, today they're filming somewhere else outside of, of Paris. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure what the film is going to be, but right. it's going to be quite different and longer. We had some events planned that also involved the dog sled and the dogs those have all been canceled. Um, so what we're going to do is improvise. We're going. Um, we're also going to bring Pacific Islanders in to talk with the Inuit people. We're going to try to have, you know, some very small venues where conversations people can come, and there'll be conversations and um, discussions about um, what's happening in their to their cultures and um, and how they feel about it and what the future is like. So what uh, what are you hoping going into the, the conference? The tone probably is, is, is altered, I'm guessing, you know, by the terrorist attacks, but, but uh, what are you hoping the outcome is going to be? Well, we're just hoping to raise more awareness worldwide about, um, I mean, my particular uh, um, idea is that Climate is culture. That um, that we're not just talking about um, plants and birds dying. We're also talking about whole cultures and, and um, ways of knowing who we are in the world dying. And uh, you know, it's all connected. Obviously, um, uh, climate um, changes often go hand-in-hand hand or provoke social unrest and social unrest it, you know, in, a, in its own feedback loop causes um, the depredation of our landscapes. Um, so I think it, the, the terrorist attacks actually will enhance the whole conversation. I think more people will pay attention to what's being said and you know, politically, if we can get some binding agreements to curb uh, carbon emissions um, and what the scientists are saying and what the indigenous groups are saying. And uh, I, I think it's, in a way, it's it's all of a piece. And so I'm hoping that, you know, with people's sympathies uh, being extended to France and the Parisians and thus the whole world, that... Um, there'll be more involvement. Uh, I'm uh, going to quote you again. This is uh, from 
National Geographic, this is Gretel Ehrlich. What people don't understand about the Arctic is that this isn't just about those other people, those Eskimos that have nothing to do with us. The Arctic drives the climate of the whole globe. I wonder if you'd expand on that. Uh, tell, how, tell us how this is connected up. Yeah, well, in a way, it's, you know, really simple. The, uh, that ice and snow, which, of course, is abundant um, at the top of the world, or was, um, and not, I don't mean just above the Arctic Circle, but, you know, the sort of the, all the northern hemisphere is usually, um, including Utah, c- covered with snow and ice, or one or the other, or both, a, a good many months of the year. And snow um, radiates the albedo, coming from the Latin meaning alba, white, radiates solar heat back into space. So it's a kind of natural air conditioner that keeps um, the lower latitudes temperate. Well, as the amount of snow and ice decreases, um, which is doing very rapidly and it's erratic, um, the amount of um, reflectivity is lessened, and so the world just gets hotter. And so bare ground and bare open ocean just absorbs heat. Um, And so it just, you know, it's exponential. It just has really heated up. Now the oceans have heated up four degrees um, in the last few years. Um, That that just creates a, a huge change in weather patterns. Um, and the other thing is, you know, the very top of the world is it has a sort of apron of permafrost all the way around. Well, the permafrost is not so perma anymore. It's, it's melting. The frozen clathrates that um, are, have been held at the bottom of the ocean, all the carbon that sinks down into the ocean have been sort of held down and frozen there. Um, are now melting because the oceans are warmer and the shells that kind of held them down are um, dissolving because of ocean acidification. And so there are now um, plumes of methane coming out of the the sea, the Laptev Sea up in the Russian Arctic, um, a thousand meters wide. Last summer, or a couple summers ago, there were 575 points between Cape Hatteras and Maine that uh, where methane bubbles were discovered bubbling up in the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so, of course, we all know that methane um, is another greenhouse gas that raises temperature. And the oceans are just exhaling heat. Um, and it, you know, it just starts to go on and on. But it all starts up there in the Arctic where snow and ice have been our kind of natural refrigerator. I wonder where where you are with the, with the whole climate change thing. I, I, I'll tell you where I'm coming from. I was reading an article, an interview with you um, just a couple of years ago, and you were, I don't know if you used the word depressed or, you know, <laughs> um, you, were, you were a little, you were down about the whole thing and didn't have a whole lot of hope. It seemed like, I, I don't know where you are. What, what do you, are you, you think, um, people are going to, the world is going to take enough action on this to, to make a difference? Well, I don't know. You know, I really don't know. We, we, it's imperative that they do, but I, you know, humans are real tricky. <laughs> <laughs> they, 
they're so self-serving and so self-aggrandizing and so so busy with themselves that they um if it's not right in front of them they don't really they're very careless with life and um i just don't know you know the scientists say that um um holding the carbon emissions to a 2 degree temperature rise is a prescription for disaster that it has to be held down to 1.5 or 1 degree temperature rise and so even so the you know we don't even have have our limits set properly um and we you know the political composition of the whole world is so complex um i you know i i don't feel real hopeful mm. But I, I also, you know, I think, you know, it's like facing any kind of death. You you go through different periods. Uh, at first, I would, you know, there were times where I was on my hands and knees in my cabin, uh, you know, sobbing. And now I I don't do that anymore. I I also try to just, which I did anyway, but just. Um, enjoy the beauty of the world to every day and I, I'm outside a lot and which is where I've always preferred to be and I just try to just um, just really dig it <laughs> that's all you can do <laughs> and to help people understand ways of that you can sequester carbon uh, by conserving huge swaths of grassland it turns out that grasslands sequester just as much or more than trees. Trees can also be cut down. And um, you can, you know, by um, um, good farming practices can also help, uh, you know, put carbon back into the ground. And there are many things that can be done, but we just have to get really busy and do them. We're talking with Gretel Ehrlich, a writer and explorer. She's our guest uh, for the hour. You can join our conversation here at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we have an email from Jake in Hiram. We'll get to that. And if you'd like to join the conversation, hopefully your call or email, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. More with Gretel Ehrlich following the break. What is a subject that you are passionate about? What do you know more about than most? Utah Public Radio wants you to share your knowledge and become a source for the Utah Public Insight Network, a new collaborative effort between UPR and the Salt Lake Tribune. Information you share could help our reporters create more in-depth stories on the things that you care about or more meaningful discussion on our flagship program, Access Utah. Become a source today. Join UPIN. For more information, visit us online at upr.org. Next time on Living on Earth, talking turkey ahead of Thanksgiving and the pluses and minuses of buying a heritage bird. The heritage ones are, well, they look like they don't have that big a breast. You know, they're a little leaner, slimmer birds. But some people swear that what is there tastes better and will pay more. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is writer and explorer Gretel Ehrlich. Uh, she's the author of 13 books, including The Solace of Open Spaces. It was uh, very well received when it came out. Of course, uh, many of her books could be described so. Uh, it also include In the Empire of Ice, Encounters with Changing Landscape. Uh, she's written about her experience being struck by lightning, a match to the heart. That's what that uh, book is called. She writes for National Geographic, New York Times Magazine, Harper's Atlantic, and other magazines. And she's uh, been uh, visiting uh, Greenland for uh, many years now and written a lot about uh, that, the Arctic area, and uh, climate change. She's heading to the Climate Change Conference, UN Climate Change Conference in Paris, and uh, right now she's in Utah for Heal Utah's Fall Party. That's a fundraiser for the organization. She's the headliner there, and that's beginning at 6.30 this evening in Salt Lake City. You can go to healutah.org for more information there. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Let me jump right to our email here. This is from Jake and Hiram. He says, What the ice traps, the ice keeps, including the explorer within me. Jake from Hiram, and he, he adds, he's a kabluna who really wants a pair of Inuit snow goggles. That's, that's Jake's. <laughs> I have some. <laughs> yeah, do you? Do you? <laughs> tell, tell me about that. Oh, I just bought them in Greenland. <laughs> they, they, must yeah. be, they must be super duper. Oh, I don't. I actually, you know, we we all we all wear Ray Bans, the, the Inuit guys. Yeah. Oh, they do. Okay, they're they're modern. Oh, yeah. All right. They work a little better. And then Jake says he he's, he talks about the explorer within him. I think a lot of us could could be described. So you you out and do it. Yeah. Well, for better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds I, like you it's, know. Yeah. I, but it's also. I mean, I you know I've lived in Wyoming for forty years and. I explore just as much, maybe even more, in a certain way, just right where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I go for hikes every day that I can. Um, often the same, the same trail, but you see such different things every time. And you know, I, I kind of keep track of where the moose has her babies and where the antelope are, and you know, you keep track of things and. To me, that's just as exciting. I mean, I have a wren that nests in in my uh, by my shed, and um, you know, I watch the wrens fledging, and it's it's all fantastic. It's all beautiful. It's all kind of um, an exploration. So, but it does require going outside. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, you. You'd <laughs> in any weather. <laughs> I sometimes joke about waiting for the video, but it, but it's not, it's not the same, is it? <laughs> no, um, not really. Uh, so why did you, why did you go to Wyoming? You were, you, you, I think you write about this a bit in, in the Solace of Open Spaces. So. Yeah. Well, I, um, well, all my life I wanted a ranch. My, you know, we raised horses when I was growing up. I've ridden all my life, and but I wanted more. I wanted a larger horizon. So um, I was making a film in Wyoming about sheep herders, and my partner died, and I I just stayed there. That was forty years ago. Mm. You live in a in a cabin off the grid. Yeah. Was that on purpose, or that's just what the, the land you found, or what? Uh... Um, both. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no electricity to the land, but I I could have gotten it, but. Why? 
Um, so yeah, I just have had a small solar system put in, and um, and now things you know are so much better than they were ten years ago. The panels are better, the batteries are better, so it just got better and better. Hmm. It's expensive, but um, totally worth it. Hmm. I want to talk about dogs. You, you, and if 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 you're living with the Inuits, you're going to be living with dogs, right? It's uh, yeah, except they live outside, and um, yeah, uh, we <laughs> we have to find shelter either in tents or you know the occasional hut here and there out on the ice. But they're fascinating to watch. So those dogs, I mean, uh, those dogs are kind of half wild. You don't really pet them. It's not like in Alaska where they make out of their sled dogs. These dogs are kind of left on their own. They have their own little society, and um, the only people who ever do anything with them are their owners who feed them and harness them. And I've, uh, well, I have ridden in in a boat with them in a little skiff, pulled behind a larger boat in the summer, but. Um, but they were very respectful. I just sat there and faced the same direction they faced and, you know, sort of pretended like I was a dog and they were fine. Hmm. But um, it's not, but uh, whereas um, when I had a ranch, I used working cow dogs. I raised them, I trained them, well, sort of, they trained me. And um, that was, you know, a real different relationship, very intimate and they, um, you know, were pretty much in attendance day and night. They understood some of them were bilingual. We taught them Spanish and English, and um, they were, you know, uh, just amazing creatures to live with. Mm. And I think you've you've been a dog person. You've you've had dogs all your life, have you? Yeah, yeah. But of course. You know, when you're working with them, when you're relying on them to help you get the work done, it's it, it's really enriched. Um, so when we had a really good day of work, often most most of the summer I was I ran our ranch by myself, and and I had to move cattle every few days. We did intensive grazing and. And so, you know, it was me and my horse and three dogs, and they they knew it. You know, they just behave when they know that that um, it's a kind of serious deal. And then at the end of the day, I would barbecue steaks for each of us. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you're good to your dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. I cook for my dogs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, they earn it. I mean, they deserve yeah. it. They they're, they're hardworking, yeah. Uh, here's an email that's come in from Kelly in St. George, uh, who says, Gretel, thanks for the insight about life in Greenland and climate change. I'm a bit nervous about the new ownership of National Geographic, changing the dialogue on climate change. Can you tell me if there's cause for concern? Well, that's a very good question. We're, we're all a little concerned. I did ask someone who shall remain anonymous uh, about that very issue. And she said, um, surprisingly, we've all been given more money to work on science and exploration. So 
we'll, we'll see how it pans out. I'm hoping that's true. I hope I'm hoping they'll just leave people alone. There have been a lot of layoffs, but but I'm hoping it will be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, it's worth you know keeping track of though. Yeah, and National Geographic is a, is a very valued resource for a lot of us. Yeah. I want to just have a few minutes left. I, I want to talk about your, your book, your experience, A Match to the Heart, uh, the subtitle, One Woman's Story Being Struck by Lightning. Uh, of course, this is a distinction you didn't seek out. It's in the very definition of trauma. Um, extraordinary. And your, your response was to try to make sense of it, I think, and write about it, of course. You're a writer. Uh, so this happened up on your ranch, did it? Yeah. And uh, I, I don't, I guess, I guess the cliched question, but I'm just wondering what, what was the experience like? What did you, what did you feel? Oh, well, I have no, absolutely no memory, complete amnesia for the entire event, which probably, uh, yeah, it's like a big black box in the middle of my, what's left of my brain. So I, I, I just know what the consequences were like, which yeah. were pretty dire. But yeah, it, you and you survived it. You know, it's a, people some yeah, people don't. Um, so what what did it do to you? That's that's a lot of trauma. It's a lot of well, I, going through. Um, the myelinated sheath of my sympathetic nervous system was fried. So the messages that go to your heart to tell it to beat weren't really this is simplifying it weren't weren't really getting there the only messages that were getting to my heart were to slow down um you know because everything is sort of balanced and so the the messages say slow and the ones that say fast are working together to you know keep everything going at, at speed and so i you know my heart was just would just regularly stop beating stuff like that and i had a a brainstem injury, so I had trouble talking, thinking, and walking. Um, and it just took time, you know. It, it took time to um, regenerate brain cells, I guess. I didn't do much for the first year. I don't really remember whole parts of the first year, but um, um, Robert Redford, uh, a Utah Utah person, um, who I, I was um, working on a movie deal with um, had my dog, my main dog, sent flown to me in California, and uh, I had a great, great cardiologist, and my parents were there, and they, you know, I was, I was very lucky to get fantastic medical care, which didn't, you know, there wasn't too much they could do for me, but it was much more about the, um, what care really means, which is about caring. I knew that people were um, sort of working towards my getting healthy every day, even though there was nothing they could really do. And that, that was a huge help. So I just rested. Mm-hmm. I rested a lot, and I just began walking as much as I could every day. It was it started out as about 10 yards, and then it went to 10 miles a day at the end of um, a three-year period. There, And I learned there, 
there are conventions of lightning strike victims. You you attended a convention. Yeah, that was really something. Was, none of us were very well. It was really like a ship of fools. Oh, dear. And this one woman. So it, it was not only lightning strike people, but um, people who had been electrocuted, you know, linemen and people like that. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, they, were, they were more seriously injured than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, alternating current is much worse on your body than... than 10 million volts of electricity racing through you. But one woman I met um, said she had to look at her driver's license every day at her own picture and then look at herself in the mirror to remember who she was and what her name was. Mm. Wow. So I was really lucky. I did retain. I, I don't have a memory for the event of being hit, but but I have, you know, given my age, et cetera, I have most of my memory mm-hmm. um, Intact, so I was really lucky, and physically, you know, I'm fine now. So, I, I guess one of the purpose I could see of such conventions: people come together and give each other support. Is that? Yeah, and also happening? there were doctors there that were uh-huh. really, really helpful. Doctor Marianne Cooper was um, was an emergency room doctor in Chicago, and she was the the only person at the time. This is 1991, who uh, who actually uh, had a protocol for lightning victims or electrocution victims. And um, so my cardiologist called her, and um, yeah, now the literature is sort of all over the place, but um, she was really helpful, and there were some neurologists and people there. And there was also a huge lightning storm when the first day of the convention. Oh, wow. People were diving under the, mm. literally, they, we were all under the various tables, and mm. some people were sobbing. And I, I mean, I, I was okay, but, you know, the doctors were crawling under there with them. And mm. It was just pretty wild. It was, it was amazing. But, uh, it, yes, it did help that, you know, you walk into a room when the first day I walked in and, and there were all these people sitting at the table and they looked up at me and said, what what date what date were you hit? And I said the date and they said, are you still having pains that no one can trace? I said, yes. And just that made, you know, made the whole thing worth it because stuff happens that, you know, doctors can't see, can't measure, but are, are very common. Um, so I knew I wasn't completely insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we are uh, out of time. But just uh, just to comment that we're we're now full circle. We began the the conversation today. Is uh, one of the reasons you went to Greenland was after the lightning strike, right? And you wanted to get beyond the tree line, and, right? Um, so Gretel Ehrlich, uh, well worth checking out her books, and uh, which include the Solace of Open Space and Heart Mountain and. Uh, uh, she wrote a book about her travels in the Arctic in the Empire of Ice. Uh, she writes for Harper's and Atlantic and uh, National Geographic and other magazines. And she's in Utah for an event for Heal Utah. It's their fall party. It's a fundraiser for the organization. Uh, their event uh, starts at 6.30 this evening in Salt Lake City. And you can get more information on that at healutah.org. Then Gretel Ehrlich is off to the UN Climate Change Conference in Paris. Gretel Ehrlich, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It's been fun talking to you. And I hope you join us tomorrow. We'll be talking about sexual assault, especially on campus. 
Thanksgiving weekend is a real uh, danger zone for, uh, for college women. We're going to be talking about that uh, tomorrow. Hope you'll join me. Thanks for listening today. If you're downsizing and have a vehicle that you rarely use anymore, why not donate it to the UPR Vehicle Donation Program? Help support the programs important to you with your car, truck, or RV. Donating is easy at 877-877-7501 or online at upr.org. We'll pick up your donation and send you all the paperwork. Just call us anytime at 877-877-7501 or online at upr.org. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Tracy Chapman is simply one of the best songwriters in the game, having written timeless hits like Fast Car and Gimme One Reason. I'll speak with Tracy Chapman about her long and storied career. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1, today on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Utah Public Radio is also heard in Cedar City on KSUU at 91.1 FM. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. The time now is 10 o'clock. Living on Earth is coming your way next, followed by Here and Now at 11.